many today hear words like sinful and tempting and think first about food, right? I'm serious. I mean, you could talk to somebody and they would hear sinful and tempting and think you're going to offer them like a chocolate covered strawberry or something. I don't know. Certain items, certain dishes that are often labeled guilty pleasures, right? Oh, that looks sinfully delicious. Oh, you, it's so tempting to go over by that table over there of desserts. But if when you hear those words, you think about glorifying God. If you think about living like Jesus and not like the world. If you think about straying from the path and not wanting to stray from the path. About living for God in every way because you love him. Then I have a great story for you this morning. Turn over to Genesis chapter 39 if you haven't done that already. Genesis chapter 39. The words sinful and tempting, keep those in mind as we look at this passage. I won't go deeper into the context here of Genesis 39. I won't go deeper at this point into the context. But if you've been reading through our Bible reading plan, then you know what events lead up to this story. Right? You recall that story as it's progressed so far. It's enough to simply point out that this story takes place in Egypt. That's the setting. It involves Joseph, who is the second youngest son of Jacob, whose name will later be changed to Israel. Or it's probably changed to Israel at this point. I don't recall. I think it is. And he is, Jacob is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. So Joseph is the great grandson of Abraham. Make sense? So Joseph is in Egypt. He's not only become a slave in the household of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. But he's also, interestingly, wonderfully, he's been entrusted with oversight of Potiphar's entire household. Now, with that in mind, let's start at the last phrase of verse 6, chapter 39. This is what we're told. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Good-looking guy. And after a time, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, 
He, her husband, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he, that Hebrew, left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him, Potiphar, the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now, this sounds like an interesting part of some kind of telenovela, doesn't it? Or soap opera. Right? It sounds like that, but this is God's holy word, isn't it? This is God's word. And since it is, we need to stop and ask ourselves, why did God include this story in his word? Why did he preserve it down through the centuries for people to read, including us? Well, when we think about this account in light of the larger context here, the clearest answers are these. First, God wanted to tell us something about Joseph's moral courage. He wanted to reveal something to us about this man who is the center of the story. Over all these chapters near the end of the book of Genesis, his moral courage, we'd say his righteousness. And second, and this you know from if you read forward in the story, and many of you already know this story, the second thing that, 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 that God wants to do here is he wants to move Joseph from Potiphar's home to an Egyptian prison. He's moving Joseph from Potiphar's home to an Egyptian prison, the very place where Joseph will meet two of Pharaoh's servants. So why is this story here? Number one, he's telling us something about Joseph's character. And number two, he's telling, he's showing us how he has sovereignly moved Joseph. He will sovereignly move Joseph into this Egyptian prison. And as you read forward this week, you'll see why that is so critical that he's there. But if we zoom in on that first reason, I think what we find here is an incredibly instructive story about resisting temptation. Resisting temptation. And that should matter to us as Christians. It should matter to us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a student of Christ, if you are a servant of the King of Kings, then Jesus himself taught you how to pray, didn't he? And one of the things he taught you to pray is this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think that's the better translation, the evil one. Matthew 6.13. Now, to be clear, that is not a prayer asking that we never face temptation. That would be misreading it. I know it sounds strange when you first read it, but that's not what it's asking. And there are some verses that help us understand that. That is not a prayer asking that we never face temptation. It's a prayer that we would escape from the power of temptation. 
that it would not overcome us. Or to put it another way, it's a prayer to resist temptation. How have you been doing recently? Take a minute, do a spiritual and moral inventory of the last week or so. How have you been doing when it comes to resisting temptation? Maybe like Joseph, you've been facing temptations concerning immorality. Maybe you've been facing temptations to be prideful or arrogant or fearful. Maybe temptations to judge others or to gossip or to worry, to lash out or to run away, to covet or maybe temptations concerning unforgiveness or malice directed at another in our words or actions or sloth or idolatry of some kind. Every day we are faced with countless temptations, aren't we? Every day. But if it's your desire to honor the God who made you, the God who loves you, if it's your desire to honor him at all times in every way, then these are opportunities to do just that, aren't they? These are opportunities to honor and glorify God. These are opportunities to demonstrate our faith in the God who gives faith, the gift of faith. So what can Joseph teach us about resisting temptation? Let me make three observations about Joseph's example here. Take a look. Look with me at how, number one, Joseph rebukes. Joseph rebukes. When temptation arises, Joseph responds with truth. Did you notice how his response to Potiphar's wife in verses 8 through 9 is constructed? Look at, how, look at what he does there. He, he doesn't simply say, no, thank you. See you later, right? He doesn't say no thank you to Potiphar's wife. He explains to her why her invitation is immoral. It begins with his commitment to Potiphar and it ends with his commitment to God. Do you see both of those in his response to her? Uh, Though you shall not commit adultery, that phrasing is still hundreds of years away in the Ten Commandments. We know from the book of Genesis that this was understood to be wrong. Remember with both Abraham and Isaac when they went to places and said, Oh, this is not my wife. It's my sister. Yeah, it's my sister. Great story. Those who were there knew that they were doing something wrong when they found out this is actually your wife. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Why are you telling us this is your sister? So we know Joseph knows it's wrong, though the Ten Commandments are still hundreds of years away. What we see here is that Joseph recognizes her invitation, Potiphar's wife's invitation. He recognizes it as wickedness. There's another word he uses. It's sin. See those two words? Wickedness and sin. It's wickedness and sin against both his earthly master... And his heavenly master. So his words, though she does not acknowledge his words at all. We don't get any indication of that. His words are a clear rebuke to her lustful designs in this passage. What's helpful here for us is how Joseph models for us that a true knowledge of God 
always involves a true knowledge of sin. Now, sometimes we don't like to think about that, do we? But it's true, according to Scripture. A true knowledge of God always involves a true knowledge of sin. Many of us would like to have that knowledge of God, but don't really care about the knowledge of sin. We're not interested in that. We'd like to hear more of the theology, but we don't want to hear about the sin. And some of us go the other extreme and want to talk about sin all the time. But we don't talk enough about God, his character, his, his grace, his goodness, his power. Both of those things need to be held together in the balance that Scripture itself describes these topics. Paul calls disciples of Jesus. That's us. If you confess Christ, he calls us to this same kind of knowledge. Take a look here on the screen at Ephesians chapter 5. He says, walk as children of light, Christian. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Great words. Good and right and true. And try to discern, believer. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Do you see what Paul is saying there? If you say you love Jesus, then as Jesus taught us, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Very practical, very tangible. Can we obey commandments without true love for Christ? Yeah, we can try to kind of conform and, and, and do those things mechanically, do them in a legalistic way. But that's an extreme. The other extreme would be to say, well, I love Jesus with all my heart, but it's really like a hallmarky kind of love, isn't it? Right? It's a lot of sentiment and feeling, but practically, are you seeking to obey him in the, in the ways that he says? This is what Paul is saying. Live out your faith. Live out your faith, and that means that you want to know what God's will is for your life, how to live your life how you might honor him in every way. And when you know that, you're looking carefully, as it says here in Ephesians chapter 5, you're looking very carefully saying, search me and know me, O God, as the psalmist said. Search me and know me. See if there be any way in me, right, that is, that is neglectful of you that doesn't want your will, that is resistant to you, that is worldly, that is compromised. We don't do this to try to earn a place before God. We do this because we've been given a place before God by His grace through Christ. We want to glorify Him in these ways. Would you say that you know, brother, sister? Would you say that you know which actions and attitudes, which behaviors and motives Honor and dishonor God? It's important that we do. So much of scripture gives us that knowledge. So if you do, then like Joseph, have you agreed with God's verdict that such things are sin? That they are wickedness. Not just failures, mistakes, struggles, and poor choices. Now, I'm not trying to be legalistic with words. I don't want to fall into that trap either. Because in certain conversations with certain people, we may want to use some different language to describe what we're talking about in accordance with God's word. 
But if we don't use words like wickedness and evil and sin, and we don't even think in those categories, but everything's a struggle and everything's a mistake and everything's a poor choice, then I really think we're missing, right? The seriousness, the severity, the gravity of what the word tells us about the utter sinfulness of sin. We do want to recognize these things and say, I recognize that before, before you, O oh God, I recognize according to your word that these things that you have told me are sinful. They are wicked. They are evil. And I don't want them in my life. I don't want them in my heart. Similarly, like Joseph, have you also considered how sinful choices dishonor and hurt other people as well? We have to have both, don't we? We have to recognize both things. Just as Jesus taught us that the summary of the law was twofold, both vertical and horizontal, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, you can think about sin in that same way, that all of our sin dishonors God and it hurts other people. Even the sin that you think is private and behind closed doors it will eventually shape you in such a way that you make an impact in other people's lives that is negative or it keeps you from being everything God wants you to be for that person next to you. No man or woman is an island. We don't just go happily along our way and think, well, I can do whatever I want And if it's private, if it's behind closed doors, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, then it's okay. Eventually, all of those choices will hurt other people, beginning with us. So we have to recognize that. We also need to recognize, as David prayed in Psalm 51, when he took Bathsheba to be his wife and he had Uriah, her husband, killed He said what to God? Against you and you alone have I sinned. Oh, really? (laughs) Really? What about Bathsheba and Uriah, David? What are you talking about? Well, David was stressing that point that all sin, even if you say I've wronged a, a person next to me and you go and you make that right with them, if you haven't dealt with God to say, God, in that action, I dishonored you. I did not glorify you. I actually went against what I knew to be true when you have given me so much grace and showed me the way I ignored that and I selfishly wanted this and I dishonored you and so I I ask for your forgiveness, God, for how I treated this other person. We see that, that Joseph has an understanding of this both vertical and horizontal and that we do we need that as well. So to borrow language from this story here, brothers and sisters, Day after day, just like Potiphar's wife, day after day, you and I are also hearing that voice of temptation. But if it is your desire, but is it your desire to rebuke such enticements as Joseph did? Do you want in those moments where temptation faces you to be able to have a clear understanding of God's word, not a squishy understanding? When you allow yourself to have a very squishy understanding of what is and is not sin, guess what? Your flesh takes advantage of that. Your enemy takes advantage of that. Now, we're all growing, aren't we? 
we're all coming to learn more and more as we grow in our faith. So we understand this. Not, not everybody's going to have that depth of knowledge there. But to the degree that you are spiritually sluggish in not wanting to understand more God's will for your life, his moral will for your life, then that is something God would, I think, is, is, is pressing you this morning to say, be clear about what is right and wrong. Don't let it just be squishy. Be clear and seek it out to the best of your ability in light of what Scripture teaches us. That way, when the moment of temptation comes, it's not a, it's not a game in your head as to what is right and what is wrong. Notice also in this story, number two, take a look. Joseph not only rebukes, but he also runs. Joseph runs. Joseph doesn't flirt with this temptation, does he? He doesn't, she doesn't come to him and say, Joseph, come lie with me. He's like, oh man, you like, no, like, you know, you are a nice looking lady. I just have to say that. But gosh, you know, he's not doing that, right? He's not playing around, just kind of, you know, doing this, just on that kind of moral boundary line. No, 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 that's not what's happening. If, if, um, in verse 12, he's not flirting, he's fleeing. We read in that verse that he runs as fast as he can away from that compromising situation. If we describe Joseph's day in and day out experience in this household as him being constantly bombarded by temptation, which he was, then in verses 11 through 12, we could say that Joseph, in this case, was gripped by temptation, wasn't he? He was gripped by temptation, literally <laughs> gripped by temptation. Potiphar's wife grabs him by his garments. Please don't miss Joseph's mindset here, though. The degree to which he fears God, the degree to which he loves God, the degree to which he seeks to honor God is evident from his willingness to run away. And though the text doesn't say it explicitly, it seems to imply that he runs away naked. He takes off, right? So the degree to which he fears God, loves God, seeks to honor God is evident from his willingness to run away naked rather than be sinfully unclothed. What an interesting tr picture we have here. He would rather be disgraced before others than defiled before God. That is the heart that is on display according to God's holy word here. Consider two other maybes grounded in scriptures. We think about this. Maybe Joseph also ran in order to avoid even the appearance of evil. If he had been tussling with this woman, right, who was grabbing him and he just didn't get out of there as quickly as he could, that scene would have created its own problems that Joseph did not want it. He wanted to avoid. And second, maybe Joseph and, and both of these maybes are just built on biblical principles that we know relate to a righteous outlook in those moments. So he wants to avoid the appearance of evil. That's probably one of the things too. Second, maybe Joseph also ran because he didn't want the situation to exploit his weakness as a sinner. He could have stayed and continued trying to rebuke her 
you know, tussling with her, trying to tell her this was wickedness as he had before. But would he be given, giving sin the opportunity to wear him down while he was there in that situation? You see, he wasn't messing around. He wasn't flirting. He wasn't staying in that situation with some kind of false idea of his own strength or without lacking discretion in this situation. Brothers, sisters, is this your mindset when you are caught in sin's grip? Do you flee or do you tend to flirt? Do you toy with seeing how far you can go toward that moral boundary line? Or do you run from the darkness seeing how far you can go in the other direction? Toward the light and away from the darkness. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, easy to remember, 2 Timothy 2, 22, Paul offers this Joseph-like exhortation to us as believers. He says, Timothy, so flee youthful passions. Don't saunter away. Don't skip away. Don't sidestep away, right, from the passions. Don't, when you're ready to go, kind of take a few steps in the right direction, going away from youthful passions. He says, flee youthful passions. And in that, as you are picking up speed, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Our flight from sin is never aimless in Christ. Our flight from sin is always towards Christ, towards what is good, towards what is right. In fact, we should be running the race that God has called us to run towards Him. And that power and that energy and that momentum is what helps us flee from sin. Right? Not just like in those terrible 1980s horror films when some slashing, axe slashing or knife slashing maniac was chasing a girl through the woods and would she be really running anywhere? No, she would be just running away, just running away from the the psychopath. (laughs) And what would invariably happen? She'd trip over a branch, she'd go over a rock, she'd whatever, she'd be so crazy and just run into a tree or I don't know what would happen. She was fleeing aimlessly from danger. We should never do that as believers. We flee the danger of sin Because we are pursuing Christ. We are looking to him, as Paul says here. If the truth equips us to resist temptation by giving us new eyes, I think we can also say that the truth through the Holy Spirit also gives us new feet in order to resist temptation by fleeing from its influence and running to God. So Joseph rebukes and Joseph runs helpful for us but think here consider one more thing notice how number three as you see here joseph reflects joseph reflects i think what we want to believe is that joseph's resistance to temptation what we want to believe about his resistance to temptation in this story that his moral courage here that his righteous response to an unrighteous woman i think we want to believe that that would result in some kind of victory and vindication for joseph joseph did the right thing look at how he's vindicated 
right? So we might look at this and, for example, we say, well, what if the situation was uh, somehow witnessed by another servant who then told Potiphar what really happened? What if his wife was subsequently found out and then chastised in some way by her husband for her behavior? What if Joseph was then honored by his master for his integrity? That's what we'd like to see, isn't it? We'd like to see this situation exposed for what really happens. But that is not what happens, is it? Joseph's resistance to these temptations has not made his life easier, but harder, much harder. As verse 19 through the end of the chapter describes, Joseph moves from being a slave to being a prisoner. The chains never come off, do they? He's a slave, then he's a prisoner. He is falsely accused and the lies told by Potiphar's wife seem to have won the day. So how did Joseph endure this unjust outcome? He did the right thing, didn't he? Yeah? He did the right thing in this situation. And what's happened? He's in prison. How did he get through that? How did he endure this unjust outcome? How did Joseph keep looking up when it looked as if God had let him down? Though the text doesn't tell us this explicitly, how could he not have reflected on the way that God was at work, the ways that God was at work in his life? Sitting there in that prison cell, thinking to himself, what just happened? Was there something different I could have done? Why did it turn out this way? As he was reflecting on that, I think he was looking and seeing how God was at work in his life. Why would I suggest this? Because the beginning and end of this chapter, Genesis 39, the beginning and the end make it crystal clear that God was in fact at work in his life. Right? Not maybe, yes, positively, definitely, with certainty, God was at work in his life. Look at these bookends with me. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 39. 2 and 3. And then verses 21 and 23. Verses 2 and 3. And verses 21 and 23. Tell us in the midst of his captivity. Whether as a slave or a prisoner. Yahweh was with Joseph. He was never alone. God was always with him. And this was obvious to everyone because verse 3, Yahweh caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. And guess what? That's repeated at the end in verse 23. It's there at the beginning. It's there at the end. For this reason, according to verses 4 and verses, verse 21, Look at those. Verse 4 and verse 21. It says that Joseph found favor with his masters. 
And wherever he found himself, whether in Potiphar's household as a slave or as a prisoner in in Pharaoh's prison, he was, as we see in verses 4 and 22, he was put in charge of everything. If everyone else, everyone else around him saw how God had blessed Joseph, you can be sure that Joseph also recognized this fact. Undoubtedly. Later, when he's able to help with some dreams, he goes before Pharaoh and they say, hey, you're the guy that can do the dreams. And he says, it's not me. It's God. Right? It's not me. It's God in me. He's the one. So we know that Joseph understood how God was at work in him and through him. This is completely clear here in terms of what others saw in him. How could he not recognize that? And my friends, brothers and sisters, that leads us this morning to what what is by far the most important piece of the puzzle when it comes to you resisting temptation. Standing firm, or interestingly, interestingly, righteously fleeing, running. (laughs) In this case, they mean the same thing. Standing firm and righteously fleeing. Standing firm when temptation's voice beckons to you is far less about you, about me, employing certain strategies in the moment. Right? When temptation strikes, how many of us are sitting there going... Now, wait a minute. Let me break this down. Let me pull out that internal whiteboard and start making some notes here. Temptation is telling me, okay, I'll get the best of this person if I talk about them this way. But uh, the downside of that is, what does God's word say? God's word calls this gossip or slander. You know, Who's doing that? Are we doing that in our heads? Like doing that when, when temptation really grips us in this way? Friends, it's, when we want to honor God in the face of temptation, it is far less about employing certain strategies in the moment. Instead, that right response, that God-glorifying response ultimately flows from how you are reflecting in all of those non-temptation times. What are you meditating on? What are you seeing? What knowledge is God giving you? And specifically, what is he showing you about his goodness in your life? How has the goodness of God been at work in your life? Where do you see his goodness? Hundreds of years later... Joseph's great, 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 And worked for those, your goodness has worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind. Remember Joseph? 
Remember how everyone around him, right? The sight of the children of mankind, they could see that there was something incredibly special about this man. They could see God at work in him. That was the goodness of God, wasn't it? It was God's goodness. God's goodness was at work in amazing ways in Joseph's life, even when by so many metrics, it looked as if the word bad was the only appropriate label for his life. How are things going? Bad. How are you doing? Bad. What's going on in your situation right now? Bad. Lots of bad. For so many, that would be the, the, I mean, for, for, for many people looking at Joseph's situation, they would describe it as bad, but it was overflowing with the goodness of God. Full of the goodness of God. Right? Bad. He was a slave. He was labeled untrustworthy. He was labeled a sexual predator. He was a prisoner. He ended up as a prisoner. But as David declares here, how abundant is your goodness, O Yahweh? Whatever Joseph was feeling when he endured the anger of Potiphar, starting in verse 19, when he was delivered over to that prison, whatever he was feeling, it wasn't long before he witnessed the powerful goodness of God at work on his behalf, in him and through him. The very same goodness that was so clear to him when he was first betrayed by his own brothers and then sold as a slave in a foreign country. So the goodness of God. Why is reflecting on the goodness of God so important in terms of resisting temptation? Because when you regularly focus on the abundant goodness of a great God, the allure of sin simply can't compare. The deceitfulness of sin has far less traction. It's far less persuasive. Potiphar's wife could never give Joseph anything like the blessings he already had from the God of his fathers. And this idea should speak powerfully to us this morning, shouldn't it? When we think about what we learned of Joseph and God's goodness at work in his life and the pattern, the systemic pattern of goodness, abundant goodness to Joseph, even when worldly metrics said everything was bad. When we think about that, it should powerfully speak to us because of all people, shouldn't we have the clearest? Shouldn't we have the most passionate testimonies when it comes to the goodness of God? Consider with me the bookends of your life. You ready? Take a minute. Think about the bookends of your life. Reflect even now on God's abundant goodness. How has this goodness been evident in your story? Think about that. How has his goodness been been, been so evident and clear in your own story? Think about all of the places where you could say unequivocally, and Yahweh was with Pete. And Yahweh was with Becky. And Yahweh was with Juan. 
And Yahweh was with Kedrick. Do you see those moments in your story? Maybe it's just today, this morning. Maybe it's yesterday. Maybe it's the past week that you look and say, oh, the goodness of God right here. So clear, so evident, so powerful. Now think about the goodness of God that will also be yours in future blessings according to the promises of God. These are the bookends of your life. These are the past facts of grace of God's favor that inform your testimony today. And the others are the promises of God contained in Scripture about how God will pour out abundant goodness in your life in a way unrivaled, unlike you've experienced ever before in the future. Some of that will be future weeks, months, and years here in this world, this age. Most of that will be in the age to come. Right? An abundance Blessing, an overwhelming amount, a staggering amount of blessing of God's goodness. So if you have experienced and are experiencing and will experience the incomparable goodness of God, then how could sin tempt you with anything better? Yes, we may struggle to see it because of our metrics labeled, our metrics and our labels based on earthly values, right? We get into that mindset so easily. How are you doing? Bad. <laughs> are you really? Yeah, I'm struggling right now, but yeah, come to think of it, I'm incredibly blessed. I'm more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. Right? We see that. We need that. We slip into that mindset with those earthly metrics and labels. But in spite of the hardships that you are facing, maybe even this morning, in the midst of your hardships, your life is overflowing with God's incomparable goodness if you belong to him by grace. Do you believe that this morning about yourself? Do you see the goodness of God at work in your life? We give thanks this morning, don't we? After reading this passage, we give thanks this morning and we give thanks at all times because a righteous descendant of Abraham unjustly suffered at the hands of foreign authorities and yet his suffering was part of God's much larger plan, a plan to rescue many. Oh, does that sound familiar? That's the story of Joseph, but it's also the story of Jesus. That's the story of Jesus. So what is this story doing with Joseph? It's pointing us back to the gospel story, isn't it? It's preparing us for the gospel story. But remember everything that the gospel reveals to us. Yes, it reveals good news, but it also is built on bad news. And we have to accept that bad news. We have to treat that bad news as God's word and hold on to it. Because the good news does not make sense without the bad news. Because if Jesus is like Joseph here and we are pre we're given a preview of Jesus through Joseph, then in all honesty, we are like Potiphar's wife, aren't we? That is us. Titus 3 captured this beautifully. Listen to this. How fitting, how, how accurate. For we ourselves, Paul writes to Titus, and for the sake of believers on the island of Crete, 
He and for all believers who receive this scripture like us today, he says, for we ourselves, brothers and sisters in Christ, we ourselves were once foolish. That was us disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures in that household. Joseph might have been labeled the slave, but it was Potiphar's wife who was the real slave. Wasn't it? She was a slave to lustful passions and pleasures. Passing our days, that was us, in malice, in envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Why should we be the ones who have the clearest and most passionate testimonies when it comes to the goodness of God? Because we've received the goodness of God in a way that no one else ever has. Your neighbors, your coworkers who don't know Christ, your family members who don't know Christ, they've received the goodness of God too, haven't they? They just don't know it. They don't acknowledge it. And they haven't received it yet, and we pray that they will. They haven't received the fullest measure of what every other goodness in this world is pointing us to. That God is the giver of all good gifts and only through Christ can we enjoy his fullest blessing. That is knowing him, loving him, serving him, being with him forever and ever and ever. If we are talking about resisting temptation, as you see even from the title of this message this morning, brothers and sisters, then it is absolutely critical that we celebrate the truth that this morning Jesus Christ resisted temptation like no other, ever, no other human being, even Joseph. He resisted temptation And because he could, he could present himself to his father as the spotless lamb of God. Perfect sacrifice for us. Talk about goodness. Wow. Talk about moral courage. Unrivaled. Talk about righteousness. Incomparable. Christ resisted temptation at every turn with no compromise. Never flagging, never failing, never giving in. Joseph gave in. We know that he did, right? We know that he did. He was human just like the rest of us, a sinner just like the rest of us. Christ never, not even once. He was the spotless lamb for us. Only through faith in Christ, through his death and resurrection, can you and I know the fullest blessing of God's goodness. Only through Jesus can a person who lives like Potiphar's wife become somebody who lives like Joseph, right? That transition does not happen between those two characters, which we we resemble Potiphar's wife. It doesn't happen for us to become like Joseph apart from Jesus. We want to be someone who doesn't live to tempt others. We want to be someone who resists temptation instead. And like Jesus, we want to become those who help those who are tempted. As Hebrews says, for him, our high priest, he helps those who are tempted because he's been tempted in every way as they have been tempted. Do you want to be that for others? To encourage others? 
If you want that, if you know that you need that kind of change, will you look to God in faith this morning? Will you ask him and say, God, please, through Jesus, through faith in who he is and what he did, change me. Help me. I don't want to be Potiphar's wife any longer. I want to be like Joseph, who was like Jesus, who points us to Jesus. And if you know that change in your life, praise God. We rejoice together in that truth, in that change. But please continue reflecting on God's goodness. You want a strategy to overcome temptation? Reflect in all the non-temptation times of your life. (laughs) Reflect, meditate, savor the goodness of God in your life. Invariably, as you start to scrutinize your life, looking for the goodness of God, you will be able to peer past all of these labels. Well, that was a terrible time in my life. Well, wait a minute, was it? Yeah, it was a hard time. But look there. There's the goodness of God. And look there. There's the goodness of God. And even over here, the goodness of God was so clear. I hadn't seen it before. I hadn't known it. Or I'd minimized it because the voice of my pain was maximizing all the other stuff. Brothers and sisters, meditate on the goodness of God. Savor His goodness in your life. Don't miss the unmistakable evidence of His goodness to you because of Jesus. So that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you faced or are facing or will face, you can always stand on the solid rock of God's goodness to you in Jesus. And you can say, this was good because it prepared me for Jesus. This is good because I'm going through it with Jesus at my side. This is good, this suffering, because God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Amen? We can always see that because of God's, because of the goodness to God, of God, the unrivaled goodness of God to us in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of our hardest times. So when the voice of temptation whispers to you today or this week, may the ever present sound of the waterfall of God's abundant blessings drown it out. Amen. If we're listening, the roar of Niagara of God's grace to us, may it drown out that beckoning whisper from temptation. Let's pray to that end. Would you join me in prayer?